This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our programming is made possible through the support of our members and friends. If you would like to make a donation to the Center or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that it can aid one's understanding of a Dharma talk or Taisho if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Thank you for listening. So we're going to look at uh, this whole insurrection business today. We're going to filter it through as we normally do, filter our, or focus it, let's say, instead of filter. We're going to fil- uh, focus it through a classic Zen uh, koan teaching. Uh, this comes from the third uh, major uh, book of Collins, a collection of a hundred cases called the Book of Equanimity or Book of Serenity. Um, Shoyu Roku in Japanese. It actually appears, a shorter version of it appears in the Blue Cliff Record. And I think I spoke about this case um, maybe a couple years ago, but we're going to uh, look at it slightly differently. So I'll read the case, and I think today uh, I'll start doing this more often. I'll read it twice so that, because I know sometimes they're a little complex. (laughs) This is case 30. A monk came to Daizui and asked, when the great Kalpa fire burns out, the whole universe will be destroyed. I wonder if it will also be destroyed or not. Daizui responded, saying, destroyed. The monk said, if so, will it be gone with the other? Daizui said, gone with the other. Later, that monk asked Ryusai, a different teacher. When the great Kalpa fire burns out, the whole universe will be destroyed. I wonder if it will also be destroyed or not. Ryosai said, not destroyed. The monk said, why is it not destroyed? And Ryosai said, because it is the same as the whole universe. Okay, once more. A monk asked Daizui, when the great Kalpa fire burns out. The whole universe will be destroyed. But I wonder if it will also be destroyed or not. Daizui said destroyed. The monk said, if so, will it be gone with the other? Daizui said, gone with the other. A monk asked, that same monk asked Ryusai, a different teacher, when the great Kalpa fire burns out, the whole universe will be destroyed. I wonder if it will be destroyed or not. Ryusai said, not destroyed. The monk said, why is it not destroyed? And Ryusai said, because it is the same as the whole universe. So I hope to have some time after the talks that we can uh, get into uh, what this brings up for people. So as you're listening, um, you can you may think of things that are relevant to discuss to bring up and uh, around this 
uh, call on this topic. So, you know, as I'm sure everybody would agree, what is it that can be said about these last couple of weeks? You know, in one way, in one way, it's, it's like one of those times where your just jaw hangs open, right? With silence, unbelievable. And yet at the same time, so much to say. I think so many people are going through this kind of collective feeling of what's next, what could possibly be next for this country. Uh, And as these events have unfolded, we were in Sashin, found myself thinking about our tradition and where it comes from and how it was born out of very uncertain times. You know, in ancient China during the Tang Dynasty, uh, it was at the same time um, a very artistic time, a very culturally relevant time, lots of advances in poetry and writing and culture and society. And, and But at the same time, it was also a very uh, unstable, politically unstable time, very violent um especially for Buddhists being persecuted. And so uh, the practices that we've inherited, that we do in this Zen tradition, um, they, you could say that they were forged in this environment um, and they were forged for that environment or for unstable environments. I think that's an important thing to remember. You know, Buddhism itself, of course, emphasizes suffering and emphasizes what to do about an impermanence. Um, But it, it was when it went to China and became practiced in those communities uh, the, the particularities of the political landscape that it really refined itself. You know, how many of the teachings, how many of the koans, for example, involve students um, wanting to find some kind of stability coming to their teachers with these ideas, these experiences, looking to the writings, looking to the sayings of the Buddha or others, wanting to lean on them, these things. And their teachers pointing over and over again back to self-reliance and back to impermanence, the importance of letting go of these things even concepts, letting go even of concepts like emptiness. We have to really appreciate that some of this, of course, comes out of that uh, real-world political uh, uh, culture in response to that. And in thinking about the course of the last four years with President Trump at the helm, 
I have to say that I'm guilty myself many times of saying things like, how much worse could this possibly get? You know, he won't do that. Or that couldn't happen. It's just posturing. And some of that comes out of my own response to people in my life and, you know, through social media and the media of that kind of the folks that tend to go the other direction of, you know, the sky is falling. It's, it couldn't be worse and it's just going to end in catastrophe. And so wanting to pull back from that, that's some of what's going on in my own responses. But it's also, I think, born of, uh, of my own, uh, well, being born in a very, and raised in a very politically stable time where not much changed. You know, we all can look back over the last know, 50 years or so and we can see how stable it has been in many, many ways for us as a, American citizens, hasn't it? And so that's both a blessing and a curse that during the um, early days of the pandemic, I think my assumption of stability began to change. And as it became clear how tenuous the uh, food chain really was, as you all experienced going to the grocery stores and seeing big empty sections, right, of on the shelves and seeing how quickly people hoarded things. And then with that insurrection attempt last week, especially seeing how easily the Capitol was breached. I mean, just like that. It became so clear how thin this veneer of society really is. A veneer is something that, as you know, is something that's just on the surface. When I used to do woodworking, it was do projects for people, build bookcases, often cabinetry, pieces of furniture, uh, often using, you know, they would ask for maple or walnut or oak, etc. They're often very surprised, customers are very surprised to find out that their cabinets or what have you is veneered plywood, not solid. And of course, that's for various reasons. Uh, one of which is cost, other which is actually plywood's more stable in some ways, easier to work with. But anybody who's worked with veneered plywood especially these days, knows that that top veneer, the oak or the maple or the walnut or the cherry, is so thin. It's, in some cases, less than a 72nd of an inch thick. I mean, it's amazing that they can make something like that. But the danger is when you're working with it, you can actually sand right through accidentally, very easily sand right through that top veneer. And then you've ruined, uh, you know, a $120 piece of plywood. Uh, 
with that thin veneer of stability becomes apparent, so many people react out of fear and anger. And in many ways, this is what is driving uh, movements like the cults of Donald Trump. You know, some people turn to religion for the same reasons. Because many religions peddle in concepts of reassurance. Concepts like God and heaven and, and even as Buddhists, you know, Buddha nature, concepts like true nature, Buddha nature, emptiness, enlightenment. And the Zen masters knew this. They knew how easy it was to, to look for reassurance. And so this monk in this case seems to be doing just that, looking for reassurance. He says, when the great Kalpa fire comes and the whole universe is destroyed, I wonder if it, it will be destroyed or not. Reassurance, right? Looking for some kind of answer. And Daiswi says, destroyed. Will it be destroyed? This it is also a concept. It could be referring to Buddha nature. True nature. Is true nature destroyed or not at the end of the universe? What happens to Buddha nature? It could also be referring to, I think, me. <laughs> At the end of the world, what happens to me? Will I, in some capacity, my soul, my spirit, some essence, survive or not? You know, so this reference to a kalpa, I've talked about many times in the Zendo, so this period of long period of time, sometimes called an eon, but it's rooted in this Buddhist cosmology, a cosmology that involves these long periods of time that um, all come to an end. And in the end, everything is destroyed. And there's a great emptying. And then the universe is born again out of that nothingness. Um, and so this monk's question about the Kalpa fire is actually taken from a sutra called the Sutra of the Benevolent Kings. And in that story, in that sutra, uh, this one particular king, I'll, I'll skip trying to pronounce his name. Uh, I'm not very good at Sanskrit. But um, he came to believe the words of a a non-Buddhist named Rata. It's an easy one. I'll do that one. Uh, and began to take the heads of a thousand kings to sacrifice to the god uh, named Mahakala. And this sacrifice was in order to preserve his realm, his kingdom, his rule. And one of his... Uh, 
victims to be this other king, because remember, he's this king is, needs to sacrifice a thousand kings. So this one of his victim kings begged uh, him to postpone his own beheading so that he could provide a meal to a hundred Buddhist teachers. And one of these teachers offered this, uh, this generous meal provider a verse. And it's uh, about 32 verses long or 32 lines long. I won't read it, but in the, uh, it begins with, in the raging of the Kalpa fire, the whole universe is destroyed. And then, so when this king is going to his death, about to be beheaded, he recites it for the other kings that are also on the chopping block. And the first king, the sacrificer, the one who wants to keep his reign, hears this verse and becomes filled with doubt. And his mind begins to open, we're told. And he actually ends up giving up his kingdom to his brother, leaving home, and then working towards repentance. This king who wants to Hold on to his control. Sound familiar? King who wants to hold on to control. It's actually not so hard to believe if we just look through history. I mean, I remember visiting Chichen Itza uh, down in Mexico, the uh, one of the uh, most beautiful. Uh, Mayan ruins and seeing this wall. I, I think it's called the, the wall of skulls. And they, from what I understand, the Mayans would stack skulls on spikes uh, and create these long walls of the people who they were sacrificing to the gods. You know, how desperate we can get when we try to hold on to what is. Uh, We can understand how in this fast-changing world, um, it might feel to some like uh, many of those ancient people who were at the mercy of the forces of nature and trying to understand, turning to things like sacrifice. Our own fast-changing culture, the changes in technology of norms, questioning, bringing to light, and then questioning the status quo of white supremacy, how threatening this can be, for some people. So much of the violence that occurs occurs because of this attempt to hold on to what 
we believe is ours, you know, our possessions, our beliefs, our ideas, our people. We all, you know, we don't all do this violently, but we do all do this. Grasp. And so the core teaching is that there is nothing separate from anything else. If we could really embrace that, we would see that I've said so many times that it's not that things change, it's that there is only change. Part of the problem, I think, is really embedded in the way we use language, turning everything into a noun, a subject or an object. It, as in the it from the koan, will it be destroyed or not, is the quintessential noun, thing, it. We do this even with our imaginings of what awakening, spiritual awakening is. I want it, or I don't care about it. that thing. But in Japanese, as a reminder, kensho, to see, means seeing nature, seeing true nature, is a process. It's a verb. I kensho something. I understand. I see something. Kenshoing. It's not a it. It's not something we get. It's not something we possess. No Product, just process. So the teaching that brings this king around is the teaching of impermanence. No matter what he does, it will end. Somehow hearing this teacher teaching just turned his heart around to embrace impermanence, to move towards rather than away from it, to embrace that this veneer of permanence is thin indeed. Ultimately, to do this, we have to give up the it that this monk is holding on tightly to. What is that it for you? Is there really an it that is separate from the Kalpa fire itself? Is there any me apart from this? All suffering, all attempts to stave off impermanence arise from separations, feelings of separation. So luckily our monk in this story doesn't radicalize. You know, he doesn't join the radical movement to try to find that stable it. But he doesn't quite get it. So in this story, in this koan, he goes on to this other master and asks the same question. But to this, uh, this time, this teacher, Ryosai, said, it's not destroyed. What's up with that? The first teacher said, yeah, destroyed. Everything's destroyed. And this guy says, not destroyed. And as you recall, the monk said, well, why is it not destroyed? Ryusai said, because it is the same 
as the whole universe. How can anything be destroyed if it is the same as the force that is doing the destroying? This case, this um, koan ends here, but according to another source, this poor monk just wouldn't give up. And so he went to a third teacher and asked Tosu the same question. And after the monk relayed his encounter with the previous masters, this third teacher, Tosu, lit incense and bowed and then called the first teacher, Daizui, an old Buddha. And then he implored this monk to go back, hurry back to Daizui and thank him for his kindness. And the monk did. But by the time he got back to Daizui's place, Daizui had passed away. You imagine how much distance must have been between these places. And so he went to a second teacher, Ryosai, but again found that he had died. Bad luck? <laughs> Maybe. But uh, motivation for practice. The Buddha said, like massive boulders, mountains pressing against the sky, moving in from all sides, crushing the four directions, so aging and death come rolling over living beings, noble warriors, Brahmins, merchants, workers, outcasts, and scavengers. They spare nothing. They trample everything. So as Zen practitioners, we're, we always fold these conditions back into the life of the practice rather than turning outward to try to hold on, moving towards it rather than away from it, moving towards it rather than away. We notice the fear and we bring that into the practice rather than reacting to it. It, that be, in that way, our fear, our, our, that fear, whatever form it takes, is our ally. It's our best friend. If we can learn to harness it, use it as a force for practice. I really mean that. We do, anytime we experience fear, we can bring that as a motivational force. You know, this monk, like all of us, feel the tenuous nature of existence. But these teachers are reminding him that he is not separate from the thing that we're afraid of. That's what we want to see. You know, in this case, the great Kalpa fire, the universe being destroyed. We're not separate from that. So in that sense, we cannot be destroyed. This thin veneer of stability. There are people who purposely, as you know, purposely put themselves in touch with what's underneath that veneer. I have a friend who does that, um, 
kind of survival wilderness type of stuff, you know. Uh, he says it's a thing that makes him feel the most alive. So how do we do this? Well, not looking towards concepts or teachings or even experiences, spiritual experiences, but to rather to swim in the current, uh, to learn to swim in the current. I remember taking swim lessons as a kid, uh, starting when I was five. And one of the first things I learned, as many of you probably did in swim lesson, was to um, do what they called the um, the dead dead man's float. Do you remember doing that? And at first, it's so hard to trust, right? To to just relax into it, you know. But that's the only way it works is totally relax. You start fighting and then all of a sudden you get water in your mouth and nose and, and so there has to be this harmonizing of water and ourselves. So, so not looking to build a superstructure of the mind in Zen, some impenetrable fortress or some it, as the koan says, some it. The it is the problem. Or more accurately, the imagining that there is an it is the problem. What are we, what are, what are these insurrectionists trying to hold on to? What it are they trying to preserve? I mean, it's, it is understandable. Who wants to live in a way that we have to question how stable our environment is? I mean, there is something about the human mind. It can get used to something very quickly. And we're all, we all have to work with that. I mean, I look back over these last 10 months since the pandemic began and gotten very used to this way of living. And now thinking about resuming a pre-pandemic life seems almost like, do I really want to do that? You know, how, how quickly we can get used to anything. We find that kind of um, stability very easily and don't like it when it changes. It has, the human mind has such difficulty with change. And many of us have come to rely on the stability of the systems that surround us. It's nice to have stability. It's nice to have stability. But stability has a dark side to it because it can dull us out. It takes away the edge In Zen, we talk about working the edge of our practice or working the razor's edge, which is very different from what most people want from meditation. What most people want from meditation is to dull the edge, to take the edge off is such, you know, I, you know, I hear that in orientations. I want to learn to take the edge off. The end of the week, I got to take the edge off. But Zen is about 
sharpening, walking that sharp edge. Of course, we all can turn to practice to get a footing in our life, to get some basic relief from the onslaught of what I call the to-do list mentality, you know, of life. And many of us need that, but Zen goes further than that. So should we be upset at the insurrection? Yes. Should it surprise us? No. No. This is what happens when that veneer becomes apparent. What it should do is wake us up. Not, not so much to fortify the castle more. Right, Not to fortify our castle, but to question the castle itself. That's what we want to do. So, with that, why don't we open it up for questions, comments. Let's keep it focused on this. Let's not complain about politics. But let's talk about the intersection, maybe, the intersection of these events as they're unfolding with our own personal practice as Zen people. So if you'd like to uh, speak up, please do. Uh, take yourself off of mute. Um, this is really, as I've said so many times, this is such an important...